You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Psalm 21, I think everybody's there. Let's uh, read Psalm 21. I invite you to follow along as I read. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man." Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Heavenly Father, help us, O Lord, as we seek to understand your word, as we seek to um, digest this teaching, Father, that you have given to us, that um, the Holy Spirit has inspired the penman to write, for um, your glory, for our edification, our building up in the faith. And Father, we pray that, Lord, we'd be brought to a true understanding of these words, that we would understand how to apply them, and that, Father, our hearts would be aligned with them. And we ask all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want to say right from the beginning that's important for us to see here in Psalms 20 and 21 is the connectivity between the two. In fact, um, you turn to the commentaries, and oftentimes the word you'll find is the word companion, where the commentaries will, will say that Psalm 21 is a companion uh, to Psalm 20. And we can see this right away. If you look at verse 9 of Psalm 20, which we looked at last week, um, there is a final petition closing that psalm. It's a final petition of many petitions, isn't it? And it's a closing petition that says, O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And in verse 1 of Psalm 21, we read the words, O oh Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. So what we have going on here is a petition being offered, and we have... Uh, a celebration of that prayer being answered. So you have a prayer being offered at the end of Psalm 20, verse 9, and then you have a celebration of praise and joy because the prayer has been answered in Psalm 21, verse 1. Now, just as a matter of review, Psalm 20, you look at verse 1 there, uh, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. We spent a lot of time last week developing the you of that verse. Uh, It's not us. We established that quickly. Um, It's the king, the Lord's anointed. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, that would have been the Davidic king, right? Um, uh, David and his successors. Uh, So what we have going on here is we have a representative of the gathered assembly. People are gathered together. 
And there's a representative who is speaking on behalf uh, of the assembly. He is speaking to the king. And in speaking to the king, he is offering a prayer. And he says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Now, uh, what most likely was that day of trouble? Very often Israel was called to go to war. Uh, this day of trouble could, be, could extend beyond war. Uh, the, the psalm could extend beyond that. It could be distress of any type, uh, national distress of any of any type. But war probably would have been um, as likely as any uh, when this uh, prayer would have been offered and when Psalm 20 would have been used. We took a look at um, an example under the leadership of uh, Jehoshaphat, who was king of Judah back in the day. Uh, we looked at that from Second Chronicles 20 last week, and we saw that the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Maronites and all of these ites, if you will, were aligning themselves. They were allaying themselves. They were, they were coming against uh, the people of God with intentions of destroying Jerusalem and usurping the throne, right? And how did Jehoshaphat respond to that? He calls for a day of fasting all over Judah, he offers prayer before the assembly, if you will. The people are gathered together. He offers prayer. One of the things that's so remarkable is, this, is here Jehoshaphat is. He's king of Israel. He's a leader. And he admits, I don't know what to do. And we spend some time on that because that's really important for us. Oftentimes we don't know what to do, do we? Uh, in one sense, Jehoshaphat didn't have any kind of plan. But in another sense, as I said last week, he has the perfect plan. Why? Because his plan is to seek the Lord for a plan. We could say both to be the same. I had a friend of mine who was an engineer, he, you know, studying theology with us, and it, this stuff used to drive him nuts, how you could have both going on at the same time. No plan and a plan. You know, his plan was to seek the Lord uh, for, his, uh, for his direction, and in, in the process of doing this, think about how he's leading his people. I mean, people look to their leader in these times. And here you see a leader with humility saying, Lord, we don't know what to do. You know what to do, Lord. Lead us, guide us. And here, uh, in back, before we leave Second Chronicles 20, just to jar our memories, get our memories working again, while, while this is going on, a Levite brings an oracle of God to the congregation. The Lord speaks to the congregation through this Levite, if you will, and gives them instruction. So Jehoshaphat's prayer is being answered. And what's really incredible about this particular story is God tells Israel, listen, you guys are going to march out there, but you're not going to have to fight. And he makes it clear. He says, listen, this battle's not yours, but it's mine. And it's important for us to hold on to that because think about it. Israel, and Judah, if you will, is in covenant with God. They're occupying land that was given to them as per the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to hopefully have time to get into that this morning. So it's a promise. God had put them in that land. It's his land. He has given it to them. They are occupying it. He has established a throne in that land, and he has put his own king on it. Now, as they march into Jerusalem to sack Jerusalem, who ultimately are they marching against? They're marching against God, aren't they? And, of course, they're lifting this up. You have, you have a, a, a prophet, if you will, speaking in the midst of this, and then all of a sudden they break out in song. They start singing. 
And one of the points I really wanted to leave you with last week is the importance of worship in times of national crisis and the importance of worship, for that matter, in times of any individual crisis. And that's counterintuitive to us, isn't it? I mean, all of us think to pray when we're in distress. In fact, even as unbelievers, we pray plenty enough when we're in trouble, don't we? Like sometimes I heard people talk, you know, this guy, I think he's a believer because he prays. Come on, everybody prays. They pray when you're in trouble. What's the difference between an unbeliever and a believer in this sense is the believer just wants out of the jam. After they're out of the jam, it's back to business as usual. Whereas a believer is praying because a believer is invested in the glory of God. The believer wants to see God glorify. The believer does not want to see uh, God's presence interrupted in his or her life. There's a huge difference between the two, but everybody prays when they're in trouble. They pray. There's no question there. Um, so prayer, of course, is something that we do. God has instilled that in us. When we're in trouble, we pray. But who thinks to worship? I mean, that seems to be really counterintuitive, doesn't it? You know, you can almost think of uh, just a story that comes to mind right now is the story of John Wesley. He's on board a ship, and he's in an awful storm, sailing back from the... He's been a missionary in the United States, and he's sailing back to, uh, back to England, and they're in an awful storm, and they all think they're going to lose their lives, and the Moravians are singing hymns. Well, the Moravians thought to worship in times of distress, and that so struck Wesley that it wasn't long after that he became converted, didn't he? You guys remember that story? It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Who thinks to worship in times of distress? But the psalmist is leading us. And Psalm 20 would, would have been a likely psalm that would have been used in the liturgy of such a worship service. So there's times of trouble. Um, could be military trouble. There's a lot of military language in Psalm 20. So our assumption is it's time when uh, armies are gathered against Israel. They're praying, O Lord. Verse 9 of Psalm 20, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Then you turn the page to Psalm 21, and what do we read? Oh, Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. There's been victory. God has answered the prayer. Now, let's spend a little time in verse 1. I think it's worth This morning, as I was thinking this through, it might mean we don't make it all the way through the psalm this morning, but I think it's worth it to spend some time in verse 1 here. If you look at this, one thing that is so remarkable about verse 1 you know, look at what's said here. O oh Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. Now, who is the you in this verse? The you in this verse is the Lord, isn't it? It's in your strength the king rejoices. It's in the Lord's strength that the king rejoices. It's in the Lord's salvation that the king exalts. What's it mean to exalt? It means to be triumphantly jubilant, if you will, over something, to where you're, you're in this state of elation, if you will. You're, it, 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 the, the triumph and the joy of this has caused you to be elated, and you're, you know, you're jubilantly lifting up these words of praise to God. But my, my point here is all of the glory is being given to the Lord. Now, what's remarkable about this is think about it. When national leaders find themselves in distress, and they put a plan together, and they are given victory in that time of distress, what do they typically do? They glory in themselves. 
99.9999% of the time. They use it for everything they have to further their political exploits, don't they? That's almost always what happens. Oh, our administration, or this, or that, blah, 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 blah. We've been given the victory. There is no, no praise given to God, but yet look at what's going on here. Oh, Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation how greatly he exalts. And what's amazing is success is dangerous. I used to say last week or last year, especially at the park, I mean, you imagine being a fly on the wall when I'm speaking to a number of professional athletes and I'm saying to them, listen, everybody, success is dangerous. You want to talk about getting quiet in there. What do you mean success is dangerous? Success is dangerous. Why? Because it fuels the fire of the pride that's in our heart. Boy, when we've been successful... I mean, it's just throwing wood on the fire of the, of the pride that's going on in our heart. Without God's grace, we cannot handle success. We just, we just, we are full of ourselves. And when you start throwing fuel on that fire, well, what happens to our heads? Our heads are already big enough. They get bigger, don't they? Success is dangerous. But what's remarkable about right here is, this, is the king is rejoicing What is he rejoicing in? Not his own wit, not his own might, not his own anything. He's rejoicing in the strength of God and in the salvation of God, which sets us up for verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You know, the psalmist says in Psalm 66, I think it's around verse 18 out there somewhere, that where the psalmist says, listen, if I would have cherished iniquity in my heart, you would have not answered my prayer. And here we truly see that the heart of the king was right here. And that's why I like to point back to 2 Chronicles 20, because I think things could be said yea or nay for Jehoshaphat. Uh, He was one of the better kings that Judah had. Of course, he wasn't perfect. Uh, But I think in the case of 2 Chronicles 20, I think his heart was right. And this takes us back to verse 4 of Psalm 20. If you look back there with me again, we looked at this last week. You know, one of the petitions that the congregation is lifting for the king is that his heart's desire be, uh, be given. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now, that is something that the Lord is not going to do if his heart's full of lust for power. If his heart is full of all kinds of of worldly filthiness, how is the Lord going to bless that? He's not. And I point this out to you to say, how would you like to be under a king like this? This is not a king that stands up and lies to you. There's no need to fact check this king. Why do kings tell lies? Because they do not want you to discover what's really going on in their hearts. This king's an open book. There's nothing to conceal. There's nothing to hide. How refreshing. Who wouldn't want to be under a king like that? Now, no human leader could ever, simply human leader that is, could ever reach this ideal. But Christ did. Do you understand? That's the kind of king he is. His heart is an open book. There is nothing in his heart to hide. 
What you see is not deception in any way. What you see is perfectly him. He's not holding back anything. He's not hiding anything. Oh, I can't tell him this if I tell him this. But No. What a king. What a savior. Amen? You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the requests of his lips. Now, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 I want to take together because here we have an inclusio. What do I mean by inclusio? You remember that this is kind of a Latin term for bookends, you know, on a bookshelf? Or maybe it's easier for us to say brackets. Like you've got brackets and you've got stuff in between. The brackets are encapsulating what's in between, if you will. And if you look at it carefully, if you look at verse 3, Notice it says, you meet him. Okay, obviously God's presence is with the king. How could God meet him if his presence wasn't with him? And it's a favorable presence. God can meet people, and his presence can be cast upon people, and it can be unfavorable. It can be in his wrath, right? We're going to see that also in the psalm if we make it this morning. But here we see that God is meeting him with his favorable presence, his gracious presence. We see presence in verse 3, and then we see it again in verse 6, the joy of your presence. Do you see that at the end of verse 6? At least in the ESV. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't look at some other translations this morning. The NIV, does the NIV do that too? Does it end the NIV end with the joy of your presence? I don't know if anyone has an NIV open. If you do, no, no one's answering, so I don't know. I don't have one, so I can't answer that. And I don't remember looking. Um, the joy of your presence. Maybe we don't have any NIVs open this morning. I don't know. Um, okay. <laughs> That's why no one's answering. Did you guys all hide your, your NIVs? Did you? Oh, he's got it with him. <laughs> okay. Well... Here we see, I want you to see the the brackets. Because what's going on here is there's these rich blessings. You meet him with rich blessings. And the first and the foremost of these blessings is God's presence. And this really is, I think this is a significant difference between us as believers and us as unbelievers. As believers... Or as unbelievers, rather, let's start there. As unbelievers, there's lots of things on this list we would like to have. But God's presence is not going to be really high on the top, is it? In other words, if we're just merely mentally assenting to the truths of the gospel, in other words, if we just believe the truths of the gospel like we believe other points of history, God's presence is probably not going to be much of a gift to us, is it? God's presence, what's that? Um, that might not be real high on the list. But as you become a true believer, God's presence becomes almost everything, doesn't it? I mean, it's something we grow in too, isn't it? Because we still, as believers, we still fight that war with the flesh, don't we? Where we find ourselves attaching to our children, we find ourselves attaching to things and stuff in ways that are unhealthy. You know, attaching to our children in ways that are unhealthy isn't just unhealthy for us. It's also unhealthy for them, too. You know, I might add that. It's unhealthy for them, too. Uh, so it's, you know, as believers, we do, we are in that war, aren't we? We're in that battle. But the Lord's presence, notice that it's the first thing that's mentioned. You meet him with rich blessings. 
The richest of these blessings is God's favorable presence in our lives. Now, there's a connection here that I want us to see, and it's going to take us a couple minutes to develop it, uh, but this is the central promise of all the covenants. If you think about the Abrahamic covenant, let's do that. I mean, some of you, what's the Abrahamic covenant? Um, keep your place in Psalm 20 and turn to Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is not the first utterance of the Abrahamic covenant, but it is a renewal of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's in, in its renewal, God is actually reaching down to Abraham to strengthen him because it's been many years since Abraham has been promised to have a son, and he still doesn't have a son. And what does God do? He brings a sacrament into Abraham's life in order to strengthen Abraham. And he gives him the sacrament of circumcision in order to strengthen him. There's a lesson here for us in terms of how the sacraments work in the life of the believer. Uh, He gives him the sacrament of circumcision. But if you look in Genesis 17, and you look at verse 7. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Okay? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now, what is presupposing this? What is what is this what this impregnate is impregnated with are three things. One, God is promising to be their God. Well, what this implies is that they are going to be his people. What this also implies is that he is going to dwell in their midst. See those things? But you see, central to all of this is his presence. Not his presence in wrath, but his presence favorably. His presence in grace. He makes this covenant promise. And this chesed love that we sing about, this steadfast love, this um, unfailing love. That's the NIV translation, I believe, most of the time. I really like that, unfailing love. My favorite is covenant love because that is what it's coming from. And it reminds us of the covenant. It is his covenant love. He has made a covenant with his people. And he is not going to break that covenant because he is faithful all the way to the T in utter perfection, in complete perfection. So his steadfast love is his love that is fastened by a covenant. God never needed to make a covenant with us. If God said he was going to do something, that's as good as done. But he reaches down and meets us in our weakness and makes these covenants. You think about what love that is. We do that for our children, don't we? We do stuff like that with our kids and don't really think about it much all the time. But why do we do stuff like that with our kids? Because we love them. It's because we love them. I mean, we tell them we love them, but then we show them, don't we? God tells us he loves us. He makes these promises with us. But then he shows us. He makes these covenants that he would covenant himself like this. Now, okay. Let's go to Exodus next, because we go to the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus, if you will, the covenant that is made through Moses. If you go to Exodus 25, we could go to lots of places, but Exodus 25, we can do this with one verse. Exodus 25, look at verse 8. Now, God is speaking to his people through Moses, 
And he says in verse 8, if you will, let them make me what? A sanctuary. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may what? Dwell in their presence. You see, central to this is the sanctuary, the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the place where God caused his name to dwell, isn't it? Where he covenants to be with his people. See, So again, central to this covenant is God's presence, isn't it? Now let's go to another one. Let's look at one more. We're going to look a little closer at this one because uh, we are talking, uh, we are in the Psalms. Turn to 2 Samuel. And I think we can do it quickly because we do look at this uh, quite often. Um, 2 Samuel 7, um, we can begin with verse 5. You know, the context of verse 5 in 2 Samuel 7 is David has wanted to build a house for the Lord. He says something to Nathan about it. Nathan goes, oh, that sounds great, king. Do what's on your heart. But then God comes to Nathan the prophet and says, no, no, uh, tell David this. I want you to share this with David. Verse 5, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Verse 7, in all places where I have moved with all of the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built uh, me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. Look at the end of verse 8 here. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. In other words, God is saying, as for my king, I have set him on my holy hill. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do the kings set themselves against the Lord and his anointed to cast his bond, their bonds apart from themselves? And the Lord says, you know, as for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. David didn't work his way up the corporate ladder to become king. God put him there. That's important for us to understand. If God's the one who put him there, how dare us try to usurp his throne, right? I mean, that in essence is to rise up and try to be above the most high, isn't it? Sorry, God, your will shall not be done, and this shall not. That's what the Ammonites and the Moabites are doing, isn't it? And the Manites. That's what they're doing in the case of Jehoshaphat. I'm saying, sorry, God, you are not going to have your king on there. We're going to have our king on there. See, that's what's so heinous about this. Now, if we continue, verse 9, God says, I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Here's God's presence. And it's promised that David's name will be made great. Now, we're going to get to that in Psalm 21 when we go back to it. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place, be stirred no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and it will establish his kingdom. And here we have this covenant being made with David that one of David's sons will be on his kingdom, will be on his throne. This Davidic dynasty, if you will, this succession of Davidic kings is a promise that God is making. And God says, 
Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love, you see steadfast love there. My, my covenant love or my unfailing love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, Saul, whom I put away from you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, central to this promise, obviously, is the gracious presence of God, isn't it? And that's central. That's one of the things. If you're trying to sort the, co- the, the covenants out, this is an important thing not to miss. How are the Abrahamic covenant? It's, it's hard to get your mind around this. The Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, or you got the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, you've got the Mosaic covenant, you've got the Davidic covenant. You know, after a while, your mind starts to hurt, doesn't it? But one of the things central to these are the presence of, it's the presence of God, isn't it? Now, let's go back to Psalm 21. Notice that the psalmist says, for you meet the king with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. You see how that's pointing back to the Davidic covenant? Who made this one king? God did. In other words, who set this crown of gold on his head. The Lord did. And as he's doing so, he's doing so as he is graciously present. God often uh, raises up kings with whom he is not graciously present, doesn't he? In fact, all authority. Some, you know, a good king, a good leader, a good president is a blessing from God. And really bad one is the opposite. And I'll let you make application of that. Uh, I start on that, and we're not going to get any. Probably, we'll probably be done. Um, and I don't want to go down that trail. I'm trying to discipline myself not to go down that trail. Rick, stop. Go back to verse 4. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Notice that he asked life of you. He asked life of you. What's that all about? Well, there's a couple of things I think we ought. I, there's some, I think three things we need to say about that, and I think we ought to keep them all. Let's put them all out on the floor and let's look at each one of them. In one sense, we could say the Davidic dynasty. That's what a lot of commentators will say about this. Well, it's the Davidic dynasty. God, in essence, in making his promise with his kings, if you will, he is extending the life of David through his succession of offspring. You know, he lives on, if you will, through his offspring. You know, and this was especially something that was important to the ancients. They wanted to, they, in a sense, wanted to outlive their lives. They wanted to be remembered. One of the very painful things for many of the ancients was, after I die, I'm going to be forgotten about. And they wanted to outlive. Some people did some crazy stuff in order to try to uh, outlive their uh, three score and ten, if you will. Uh, they did crazy stuff to try to outlive that. That was important to them. But see, there's, there's, there many people say, well, you know, the dynasty is what's being pointed to here. Uh, you know, uh, he asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. And, and what they'll also say is they'll say this length of days forever and ever is kind of poetic hyperbole, if you will. I'm paraphrasing them. They don't come out and say poetic hyperbole, but that's what they mean is poetic hyperbole. In other words, they're exaggerating for purposes of poetry. 
um, there is a sense, I think, where we do have some poetic uh, um, uh, hyperbole here, exaggeration, because what earthly king is going to rule beyond a lifetime, uh, beyond a generation for that matter? Um, but there's something else that we need to keep in mind here. In the case of Jehoshaphat, you know, Jehoshaphat, when he finds out the Moabites and the Ammonites are coming up against him, I mean, he is scared, isn't he? Why is he scared? Because he recognizes unless God intervenes, he's a dead man walking. He's a dead man walking. I mean, if this, if this military comes in, if this army comes in, they're going to destroy him. He knows it. He can't stand up against him. So he seeks God for his salvation. God gives him his salvation, and there's a sense where he has been given life because he was basically a dead man walking. Does that make sense? But there's another case, and we need to keep this one. How is this ultimately pointing? This is ultimately pointing to Jesus, isn't it? It's ultimately pointing to Jesus. Um, think about Jesus in his earthly ministry. Think about Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. What is Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying, oh, Lord. Jesus knows full well what awaits him, doesn't he? He knows there's a cross awaiting him. He knows that his assignment is to go to the cross, and there he is looking, staring face down. In a matter of hours, he's going to be hanging on a cross where he's going to be enduring the wrath of God for the sins of those whom he's come to save. And he says to the Lord in the midst of his distress, in the midst of his trouble, Lord, if there be another way, take this cup away from me, doesn't he? But not my will be done, but thy will be done. You see, the, the, the Lord's desire, Jesus' desire, we studied all through, Mar, or through John's gospel, didn't we? And what was always on Jesus' heart? There was never anything concealed. He made it really clear that his business was to do the will of the Father. How many times did we emphasize that in sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon as we've seen that in text after text after text after text? He was a heart was an open book. I'm here to do one thing. That's to glorify my Father who is in heaven. You know, my will, my food is to do the work of God, isn't it? My will is to do the work of the Father over and over and over and over again. That was what he was on about all the time. Even to the very end when he says, Lord, if there's another way, I'm all ears here. But there wasn't any other way. Jesus knew that. But in essence, he is asking for life, isn't he? Isn't he asking for his life in the Garden of Gethsemane? Of course that's what he's asking for. Lord, if there's another way. He asked of life. And God answered him. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died where we belong. But on that third day, the Lord gave him life, didn't he? You look at this verse. For he asked life of you. You gave it to him. Lengths of day forever and ever. There's no poetic hyperbole there. Jesus lives and reigns supremely forever and ever for eternity. I think the NIV does say eternity in that verse. I think, if memory serves me correctly. I looked at a lot of stuff this week. I think it does. Uses the word eternity forever and ever. Verse 5, his glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. Let's spend a minute on that. Because in verse 1, the king is not taking any glory for himself, is he? You know, we started out discussing that, didn't we? 
It's amazing how the king does not try to use this, this success and victory that he has to, he doesn't try to exploit it for political gain so that, you know, he can be reelected or whatever. He doesn't do any of that. Um, he gives all of the praise and the glory to the Lord. Okay, that having been said, in verse 5, he is glorified nevertheless. Well, it is easy for us to see. Let's think again. Jehoshaphat gives us such a great case study for all this. Because think about it. If we were living under Jehoshaphat's reign during this time, it would be a blessing to have a king say, listen, I don't know what to do. Everybody get together. Let's have a worship service and let's collectively seek the Lord's will and let's do it. How wonderful that would be. And then when God gave uh, deliverance through it, think about how highly we would praise Jehoshaphat in our hearts. Now, we could be idolaters and do it wrongly and give all of the glory and praise to, to Jehoshaphat, and undoubtedly there were probably people who did that. That would be wrong. No, the, the glory and praise belongs to the Lord, but think about how highly the Lord has exalted Jehoshaphat because the Lord has done it under the instrumentality of his reign. Do you see that? So it, it, it comes down to what Jesus says in John 5, what's it, 44? 45, right in there somewhere, Jesus says to everybody, he says, listen, how can you believe when you receive glory from men? Then he goes on and says, seek the glory that comes from God. This is the glory that comes from God in verse 5, isn't it? His glory is great through what? Through your salvation. Not through his salvation. Through your salvation, his glory is great. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. You see, this is setting us up to look beyond King Jehoshaphat to another king. And we can think about Jesus. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. How many hymns, you know, Jesus goes to the cross, doesn't he? He goes to the cross to merit our salvation. He goes to the cross to, salve, to, to accomplish our salvation. He's raised on the third day. And ever since then, how many people have been praising Jesus? His glory is great. His splendor and majesty is being incomprehensible, isn't it? And that's what we're to look at when we look at these verses. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow in him. Verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever, and you make him glad with the joy of your presence. There we have presence again. You see, it's a set of brackets. Now, I'm going to give you the choice. Do you want to wrap it up right now, or you want to finish the psalm? Because I'm looking around everybody, and I'm seeing... All right, let's do it. Verse 6, or verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Let's table that, because I'm toying with going to Psalm 3 either next week or soon, and we're going to get the principle of that a lot in Psalm 3. But look at verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Now, sensitive readers, as there are many today, and we might confess that even many of us are sensitive readers, we struggle when we come to these verses in the Psalms, don't we? And maybe the thought of bringing these Psalms into your personal prayer life might actually be a little bit horrifying. Right? What do we do with these verses? Especially when Jesus says, listen, love your enemies. 
Pray for those who persecute you. How do we rectify what Jesus says in the New Testament with what we have going on here? Notice, okay, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Look at verse 9. You make them, you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their offspring from among the children of man. What did we though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will you will put them to flight. You look at verse 12. You'll aim at their faces with your bows. <laughs> you read those verses and say, whoa, what do we do with that? How does that fit into all of this? I started to set us up for this already when I was talking about, in the, again, Jehoshaphat's a great case study for this, because in Second Chronicles 20, we see the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Maronites. What are they doing? They're setting themselves up against the king. They're setting themselves up against the Lord's anointed, aren't they? They're setting themselves up against God. What happens if they succeed? God's promises fail. If they eradicate the if they eradicate all of the heirs of David, then there are no longer any heirs to make these promises with. If they succeed. Now, whenever we read verses like this, always keep this running in the background that the preferential the preferential idea here is that the enemies repent. But the scriptures are really clear that is not what everyone is going to do. There are indeed real enemies. There's kind of a naivete today uh, with the church where uh, we think everyone's going to get converted. And we actually practically act like we do not believe in hell. We don't believe in eternal. I mean, we act like we don't believe that. And it's it's kind of scary because sometimes we should ask ourselves, do we really believe there's a hell? Because we act like we don't. There is a hell. I could tell you a quick story. I remember one of the first seminary courses I took. It was at nighttime. It was storming. It was late at night. It was a night class. I was in class with Dr. Denny Proutot, and he was developing the end towards the end of Isaiah. And, and, it was getting really, really scary. I mean, he was developing that to the point. He's a, he's first, he's a first rate preacher and communicator. And he was developing that. And he started to go into preaching. And finally, at one point, he said, listen, man, I got something to say to you. There is a heaven. And there are people in it. And then he said this, and I've never forgotten it. He said, there is a hell. And there are people in it. And we need to understand that. When we pray for the advancement of God's kingdom, which we pray for all the time, that cannot happen without the defeat of Satan's kingdom. We can't have one without the other. And that's how we should understand these verses. Your hand will find out all your enemies. How today does God's hand find out his enemies? God already knows. But how do we discover that? Every time the gospel is preached. When you preach the gospel, people have a choice to receive the gospel. They have a choice to reject the gospel. Those who reject the gospel are showing their hand, aren't they? They're showing their hand. 
Now, if they continue to reject the gospel and continue to reject the gospel, we know that as you reject the gospel and as you reject the gospel and as you reject the gospel, there's no neutrality under that. Your heart continues to harden, which makes it less and less likely. There are lots of people out there that I do not share the gospel with anymore because I've shared the gospel with them enough that they clearly understand it. And to continue sharing the gospel with them, I feel, would be to harden their heart even further. How many times are you going to reject the gospel? And when you reject the gospel, you're calling God a liar, and you're saying you do not need Jesus Christ, who suffered on the cross. Think as a parent what you'd feel like if your son suffered on the cross, and only for someone to say, listen, I don't need it, no thank you. That's not a great illustration, but I'll leave it out there. There's a lot of problems with that illustration, but you get the gist of it, right? This is a... One of the problems that we have is we do not think unbelief is a big deal. We just don't think it's a big deal. We don't. It's something we need to repent of as a church. And when I say church, I mean church at large. We don't think, we don't think common garden, unbe- uh, garden variety unbelief is that big of a deal. But it is very heinous in God's sight. It would be horrifying to a holy angel absolutely horrifying. And when we're glorified in heaven, it would be one of the most horrifying things we could think of is to have just an ounce of unbelief in our life and in our heart. First of all, if you had an ounce of unbelief in your heart, just a momentary thought, you would be disqualified from heaven. You wouldn't be allowed to exist there. That has to be expunged completely. That has to go. It's never going to go while we don't take it seriously. And while we're not taking it seriously, it leaves us completely aghast as to what to do with these verses. You'll make them a blazing oven when you appear. Why would God do that? Because they're doing something really, really bad. That's why. That's the only reason he would do that. In his wrath, fire will consume them. What's that all about? It's judgment. Wrath is an emblem, and fire is an an emblem of judgment, if you will. You will destroy their descendants from the earth. What does that mean? You know, think about what Jesus says to to those who are opposing him. We could call them church leaders, the church leaders that are opposing Jesus during his earthly ministry in John chapter 8. What does he say to them? He said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing what? You'd be doing what Abraham did. But you're not Abraham's children. You're Satan's children. They didn't like that too good, but that's exactly what they were. They were offspring of wickedness. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that as unbelievers, we're dis- we are sons and daughters of disobedience, aren't we? You see, what verse 10 is about is God is going to be thorough in ridding all evil from his heaven and his earth. It has to be expunged. We read, we love, I mean, we love, it was a joy to read Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Who doesn't love, who doesn't love that verse, those verses? The new heavens and the new earth. Do you understand? The new heavens and the new earth have to be completely free of unbelief because unbelief is evil. It has to be completely expunged from evil. And that all has to be ridded out. That all has to be dealt with. And here we're seeing that it's going to be dealt with thoroughly in verse 10. 
Though they plan evil, they're planning it every day, 24-7, they will not succeed. How about verse 12? There's someone saying, Rick, you're not going to close before you explain aiming your bow at their faces, are you? It'd be like a study Bible where you look down and you're like you want an explanation of a verse and it tells you something obvious that you already know. It's a disappointment, isn't it? They skip it. I think they do sometimes. I, I'm going to give you my opinion on this. This is my opinion. And I'll close with this. This is my opinion on it. So you can take it or leave it. My opinion on verse 12 is this. Is I, I, I have spent a lot of time thinking about verse 12. And, you know, the presence of God is in the context of this psalm, isn't it? The presence of God. And during the Old Testament administration, Aaron, the high priest, was called to give a blessing to the people. We call it a benediction, don't we? And what is that benediction? It's in number six. You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you. Okay, lift up his countenance upon you. What does that mean? It's beautiful language. It's a little fancy language. But what it means is may he look with you or look at you with his gracious favor. May he look at you with his gracious presence. So may he stare at your face with his gracious presence. But in terms of the wicked, that is not what he's going to do. In terms of the wicked, instead of looking at their faces with his gracious presence, he is going to aim his bow of judgment. That's what I think it means. It's really alarming, isn't it? If you ever read through this psalm, you get to that verse, you're like, whoa, it's a wow factor, isn't it? It's meant to be a wow factor. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength we will sing and praise your power. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this psalm. We thank you, O Father, for these psalms, Lord. And we thank you, O Lord, how these psalms serve to instruct our theology, instruct our walk with you. We thank you, O Lord, how these psalms serve, O Lord, to uh, instruct our prayer life and guide our prayer life, Father. And Lord, uh, Father, I pray that, Lord, on Wednesday night as we take these psalms up, that, Father, you will help us, O Lord, to break, to work this, to work what we're learning here, uh, Father, to work it into our, our prayer life, O Father, that our prayers, O Lord, uh, would be molded and shaped after yours, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.